Welcome to the No Look Podcast. I'm Rue. On this episode, Angel Chung Cutner, a renowned community organizer, artist, social chameleon, and youth mentor. We talk about her literacy program in New Orleans, the state of charter schools, gentrification, and how we build bridges between cultures. As always, Bugash has the interview. My man, take it away. Uh, Angel? Yes, how's it going? How is it that you, you came about, you know, giving away books to the community yes. and just promoting reading? So I was inspired by another program that I used to participate with when I lived in California. And um, that program has a similar model. And I did it a few years ago and it just kind of came across my mind at the start of 2021 that this was something I wanted to bring to the New Orleans youth because I'm involved in a few different community organizations and these organizations love to give away scholarships, which is not a bad thing by any means. But when we get into conversations talking about giving away scholarships, it's always about rewarding the students at the top of the ladder. And the more and more it comes up, the more and more I think about how giving scholarships to the students who are already achieving doesn't really do anything to improve the overall well-being and performance of students across the board. And so I kept trying to bring up the conversation about investing in tutoring programs and something that would benefit an entire body of students rather than rewarding the students at the top. And so the more that these organizations talked about giving away scholarships, the more I wanted to do something that was going to benefit a larger group of students. And so then this group came back to mind and I um, just wanted to have, you know, my own spin on it. And um, a big part of that, I think, is the fact that the literacy rate of Louisiana is in such a dire place and has been for quite some time. What is what is this program called and, and how many events have you had and how do you partner with the organizations or, or people to actually, you know, do what you do in the community as far as identifying young people or people to come out and actually receive books? So the program is an open program um, available to anybody. It's a drop-in program um, and it's free. No one has to commit for any amount of time. The students of basically all ages, but generally we say between four and 14 can come. They read books with us at retreat is how it's pronounced. And um, we partner with different organizations who basically just want to support the mission of promoting literacy and supporting students in building their home libraries. And also part of that is we give students a reading assessment and um, they practice reading comprehension. So even for the younger ones who can't read on their own or who need a lot of support in reading, they can still practice their comprehension skills and get excited about reading because there are all these incentives that are built into the program that they can earn through collecting our cha-ching coins that are the tokens we give away. And for every book they finish, they earn a coin and then they get to redeem them. So they can redeem them immediately for small reading rewards like um, school supplies. And we have all these cute little 
you know, like really creative school supplies and things, or they can save them up and get larger things like science kits and bicycles. And so um, some of our reading rewards have been donated from partner organizations, such as the bicycles. Um, other partner orgs have just contributed funds for us to purchase more books. And we want to transition toward making it a regular recurrent where we have visiting guests who um, do a read aloud to the entire group. And also um, we want to have enough books so that we can give students books to take home every time they visit with us and they can start to build their own home library. You are doing a event on Juneteenth, if you will. Talk about that particular event and in addition, talk about Juneteenth itself. What does that mean to you and the significance of having an event on Juneteenth? Right. So part of the idea came up when the conversation around moving City Hall to Congo Square began. And so we were already planning on our reading tents for July. And when we realized Juneteenth fell on a Saturday, um, we just thought that we should do something especially, particularly geared towards the historical relevance of it, especially considering where we're hosting, which is the Beauregard Kai's house in the French Quarter. So just the fact that we are hosting an event in a black city <laughs> at a house named after a Confederate general um, already felt kind of bizarre. But then with the uh, march that's happening two days prior, it just felt like something we should tie into. And so um, the book Come Sunday came to mind, written by Freddie Williams Evans. And so Freddie and I had participated in a program together a few years ago. And so I reached out to her and asked her if she would be willing to come and read a book and present to the kids about the significance of Congo Square since it's such a relevant topic right now so that they should know about it and be involved and that they can be active participants in that conversation. And so all of this just kind of started with random pieces of ideas and then it's all starting to flesh out. And so we also decided it'd be a great time for us to um, make it a large book giveaway by um, getting books about black youth and written by black authors and also by um, highlighting books that are written by local black authors as well and supporting the Community Book Center, which is a locally black owned bookshop. Right. So talk about... So the theme is just black. <laughs> I got you. Now, now it's interesting, uh, you know, Angel, because you are, you're a biracial. And I mean, and, mm -hmm. and talk about just your background and as a person of color and just some of, you know, your travels and some of the things that's led you to the work that you actually do, not with just a reading program, but just stuff that you do in the larger New Orleans community. Yeah, so being biracial um, has definitely allowed me, I guess in both ways, access to certain groups and to people, but also exclusion from certain groups and certain people. And so the way that I see it now in my 
present decade of life is that I'm fully both of my races all the time. And so when I'm with the Asian community, I'm fully Asian and I'm fully participating in um, what's happening in the Asian community and that conversation and uplifting that community. And when I'm black, I'm fully black and I'm fully involved in the black community and uplifting that voice as well. And so um, I just have been so blessed to be able to find a way to mix and balance my identities and also to work within both of my communities in a way that just has this symbiotic relationship where it all just comes together and that the people around me work in a way that they understand what I'm doing and they understand who I am. Right now, you have done work with with Ethan Ashley with uh, with the school board and, and various educational things, if you will. Yeah. You know, just talk about your passion about education. So, my background is in education. Um, I have been teaching for over a decade now, and I recently took a little break and did something different, and I'm going back into teaching. And I've taught various different subjects um, from music to interpersonal communications and now I'll be teaching gardening and um, when I was with Ethan Ashley I was supporting what was happening locally with um, the school board and just what was happening in the district that I live in and I was also involved with OneNOLA which stands for Organizing Network for Education and a lot of our work there was around um reforming the charter school system and holding charter schools more accountable and writing in um, new guidelines for how schools can get approval for their renewal um, applications and things like that. So education has just been kind of the core, education and youth have been at the core of what I've been doing for over a decade. And I don't really see it going any other way. Even when I wasn't teaching, I was still involved with youth and still as involved in community organizing as when I was teaching. As an educator, how would you grade the, the New Orleans school experiment? How would you grade it? I mean, the, the whole charter movement, if yeah. you will. I mean, I think that charter schools definitely have a poor reputation in the city and I don't think that it was done well and I don't think that it continues to be done well. I also have worked in a charter school outside of Louisiana where it was done well. And so I don't think that everything about charter schools necessarily is a bad thing, but I think that um, the model that several of these CMOs are using, that um, the curriculum and all of that just isn't culturally relevant and that um, when we get rid of teachers who speak the language and know how to communicate with students and can make ties and connections to families and students and culture in a way that can't be done when you're using a cookie cutter model. You use, you lose so much for the students. And so I think that, um, yeah, it's pretty terrible <laughs> for the most part. Um, and I know some schools are trying to kind of tweak things and bring in their own flavor, but I think that that's backwards. It should have been 
focus on the local culture and the students and the people here and built out that way rather than the way that it was done. And so right now it's undoing damage rather than building up a system. When you say culturally specific to the local population, more specifically, Angel, what is it that, let's say, you and you would suggest that would be done differently? I mean, just as an example to illustrate what that would would look like. Right. Um, So this is kind of, this is maybe a surface example, but I worked at a school where... um, It was just so rigid. It felt like a prison. And students were expected to walk down the hall with their hands by their side. They were expected to not socialize in the restroom. They were expected to eat in silence. And they were expected to sit like robots and raise their hands like robots in the classroom. And none of that reflects the colorful nature and culture of New Orleans. And so the fact that we just have this rich culture of music and movement and socialization around us and that students were expected to completely whitewash all of that and come into a building and operate as robots was so disgusting to me and that they weren't able to be individually expressive at all because it was seen as being disruptive was so unreal to me. And so even just something like that, like the way that students are able to communicate and walk down the hallway was policed. And I think that that is just setting not just a terrible precedent, but it also is accenting the fact that we have the school to prison pipeline. And so when you bring in a system that looks like prison into the schools, then you're only going to get that as a result. Well, I agree with you, Angel. I think that there are real, in, in a post-Katrina environment, I, I would say that there are a lot of disconnects in terms of the types of models that have been used to with, with the children taking away neighborhood schools and and bringing mm-hmm. in people who are let's just say not adequately equipped to right. work with the kids in this kind of environment because I think that you know as a as a person who does some work in education myself that to think that that there are different ways you know I mean coaching up kids and and encouraging them and uh, telling them that they are excellent and not looking at them as at risk necessarily in treating the school environment like a prison population right. situation is, is really problematic for, right. especially when the teachers, and in many cases the administrators, aren't experienced, nor do they look anything like the kids that they're actually exactly. serving. So there right. is no real aspiration level trajectory of, hey, I could do this too, you know, because there are just disconnects in that respect. Right, and there's something there's something wrong when a five-year-old can tell you all of the students are black and all of the teachers are white, and that's how my school looks, you know? It just, it, it goes to show that there is a disconnect there in that case, when that's all the child sees when they walk into a school building is that only white people can be teachers. You were recently in a television documentary that talked about race. How did you get involved in that particular project? And just talk a little bit about that experience. Um, Somebody just recommended me to get in touch with a reporter who was looking for 
um, biracial people with Asian backgrounds to tell their stories because of the Stop AAPI Hate movement. And so they were just looking for some biracial voices and I just happened to have my name thrown out there and that was really it. I mean, nothing special. <laughs> it was kind of a right place, right time kind of a thing. <laughs> I know we did speak about the interview itself was a lot longer than the sound bites and I guess the content as far as the actual finished product. What do you think of mm-hmm. how you were presented and in terms of, you know, just the whole scope of the conversation that you did have? How different was that? I'll say that there was a balance to the story, which I think had to be done considering the variety of the audience that was watching it. Um, At the same time, I think that my voice felt like it was coming from a different place than the other people. (laughs) So that was kind of interesting because it, when I, I think I've only watched it twice, but, um, it did feel as if I was speaking a lot more on, because I was the only one who um, had a, a African-American background of the people being interviewed. And so I think that already gave me a different experience, but I also felt that my voice felt like it was coming from just a different um, side of the conversation. And um, there were a few sound bites that I thought was kind of interesting that they selected, but I didn't feel as if I was misrepresented at all. I thought it was a pretty good reflection of what I had to say. Um, Although it was, you know, had to be inclusive of everyone. So it was kind of um, shortened. But uh, what I was impressed by was the fact that when I went to my Rotary meeting the following morning, Several people approached me about it, and um, one older white man in particular said to me that he saw the interview and he wanted to thank me because he said, old white people like me need to hear what you're saying because we don't know those things and we need to hear them. So thank you for saying that. And I wasn't sure if people were going to maybe be offended by some of the things I had said, even though I didn't feel like I had said that much. But if you want to, you could have maybe, you know, dug into what I said and maybe picked it apart. But um, the people that did approach me expressed an appreciation for what I had to say because they hadn't heard some things maybe put in a way that landed with them. So I thought that was really good and maybe it wasn't because of how I said maybe it was because of the way it was edited but at the end of the day I mean having that kind of feedback meant a lot to me to know that my words reached someone this week's episode was brought to you in part by Mr. Chell's First Class Cuts, located at 2734 South Carrollton Avenue. It's the premier barbershop in the city of New Orleans. Founded by the iconic Rupert Mr. Chell Wilson, it continues to be the place where one can see first class service. So today call 504-861-7530 to make an appointment. Mr. Chell's First Class Cuts, continuing the tradition of Excellent service giving back to the community.
You are part of a community board, and I think overall, you know, the city is seeing some demographic shifts. So what is your, your take on how some of these neighborhoods are changing and how will that or how is it impacting the city of New Orleans? Yeah, I mean, I am someone who purchased, was able to purchase a home that cost far more than what the value of the houses were before I was here a decade ago. And so I can consider myself being someone who maybe is a gentrifier, even though I'm not of a certain race, I'm definitely of a certain action that would qualify me as such. Um, And even on my street, if I go two blocks over, there are no young children there. There are no families that have been there for, for generations. But then on my street, there are several families that have been here for, um, maybe they have a second generation living in a home. And so our block does feel like a slice of what was here maybe historically in the neighborhood before I arrived, before we arrived. And I'm saying we as a collective new people who are coming in and buying these houses at, you know, these outrageous prices. Um, And so, uh, you know, in one hand, I do, it makes me sad to see that so much of the um, previous residents are being turned over. And on the other hand, I see that there are ways that the neighborhood can benefit. And I mean, it's a tough conversation, honestly. And um, I mean, I talked to neighbors who like one of my neighbors, his mother was the first black woman who owned a house, I think in this neighborhood or on the block. And um, several of my other neighbors, I thought actually owned their homes and I find out that they're renters and they're all older black people. And so things like that, whenever I learn them, it just makes it so much more, it hits so much closer to home when I realize that the people that I thought actually were established here are still not homeowners and that the rug could be pulled from them at any minute. And that's a really tough pill to swallow, to have to face and to realize that I could have contributed to that as well. But think about it, I think, to put it in perspective, I think that in a in a pre-Katrina environment, because rent was actually affordable, mm-hmm. a lot of people actually did rent, you know, I mean, it lived in houses long time because they had relationships with the landlord. And they were like mm-hmm. family. And like rent was pretty cheap, so it wasn't as if it was necessary always to own housing. Think about even just the scope of how large public housing was, which was affordable housing. Even some of the white people, I mean, before some of them started moving out, they rented as well. So it, it was just an affordable city to live in. It wasn't really necessary in some cases for people to think about, well, I'm going to buy a home because they had relationships with landlords and rent was cheap. Everything flipped in a, in a post-Katrina environment where people just saw opportunities to do some different things. So I don't think it's mm-hmm. a like you necessarily is part of the problem. The main problem, in my view, I think, is when those who come in don't value what was already there. Right, right, right. Yes. You oh, know, and that too. Issue. Yes. A perfect example of that is um, I have a neighbor and they have a huge mural on their fence and it is 
there's no cultural relevance to it. There was no conversation with the neighbors about it. And every time I look out my window, I have to look at this thing. And personally, I think it's an atrocity. I hate it. (laughs) And I just think if these people love this painting so much, why didn't they paint it on the inside of their fence so they could look at it all the time instead of on the outside of the fence where I'm looking at it every time I walk outside my house? And so even something like that, where you're just coming in and metaphorically, the painting is loud. It's just like neon and it's abrasive. And that to me feels like you're not acknowledging what was here before you were here. And you're just coming in and quote unquote, whitewashing and making a loud statement about something without having any kind of sensitivity to what was here before you came. And that drives me crazy. <laughs> and a couple of more, Angel. How do you, uh, how do we build bridges of understanding? Because I think you have an interesting perspective from a lot of, given that you are airport Korean, you are African American, you are somebody that came in the city as a, as a new person, but you do have a very old sensibility because you are, you know, all kinds of people. So, of from different backgrounds and whatnot, when like where you're not isolated, like some come in and then they're not really connected uh-huh. to certain parts of the population, even if they live inside of traditional communities that might have been mostly African American. But how do you actually, mm-hmm. how do we get to building bridges of understanding and able to get this experiment right, where we can take mm-hmm. through a new ingredient in a gumbo without losing the flavor? I think a big part of that is listening and realizing being able to humanize people and getting to know someone who's completely different than you because that was the only way that I was able to have conversations with people who I would otherwise never cross paths with is because I didn't go in and try to burn down their meeting. I didn't go in and try to make a point. And I didn't go in yelling into these spaces, but I went in and just made a personal connection with people. And I was just really authentic and I enjoyed getting to know people. And I think that's the only way is by just being a human and finding common ground, even if it's not the common ground that's going to change the world tomorrow maybe the common ground is y'all like potato salad the same way you know start there (laughs) and build bridges from that common point and then get to the deeper issues and get to the larger issues once you're able to humanize someone because when you have a personal relationship with someone and they're able to say I can listen to you now because I consider you a friend that's how you reach people Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to change someone's mind. And all of this kind of yelling and fussing and fighting and, you know, having opinions. And and some of them are like, yes, some of these arguments are very justified when we talk about race, right? Of course they are. But yelling about them to someone who doesn't understand is not going to change their mind. But building a relationship with someone and then telling them your personal story so that they're able to come into your world and feel your experiences, that's how you're going to reach people. And uh, the idea of bridging gumbo, because we are in a city of flavors, so much on so many levels, 
actually we had to give the recipe. What's your recipe for a successful and prosperous life? <laughs> um, hmm. There are a few things. Um, I would say travel a lot and meet new people, experience new cultures, um, have conversations with people, be willing to be wrong. <laughs> Um, enjoy a lot of hobbies and meet people who are not like you often. Um, that's just, that has opened so many doors for me and it's opened a lot of a new world where I have been able to experience things that I otherwise might not have. And also have mentors that are older than you, that have experienced life in various decades. I have a lot of mentors. <laughs> My husband jokes that I call everybody a mentor, but basically anyone who has at least 10, 20 years on me plus, I consider them a mentor and I love to sit with people one-on-one -on -one and just listen to their stories and gain wisdom and understanding from them because there's so many different perspectives that everyone has and so many different ways that people can speak into my life that I want all of it. <laughs> so just have a lot of mentors because there's just wisdom everywhere. And then lastly, for me is to leave a legacy. And for me, what that looks like is investing in youth. Because I, I don't think I'll leave a legacy any other way unless I'm investing in youth in the next generation. You are definitely doing that. And, um, you know, I appreciate it. So many people do appreciate what it is that you are doing. So thank you for your time. And we'll definitely stay connected and talk soon. Thank you so much for making it happen. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Angel Chung Cutno. You can find more about her at angelchungcutno.me. Please subscribe to get the next episode of the No Look Podcast. Pupugach, I'm Peace.